Welcome to another episode of Acts of the Blood God, an independent RPG podcast. I am your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. Um, I think I accidentally bought a PS5 last night. Wait, were you drunk or something? Is this one of those situations where you wake up and the PS5 is right next to you and you go, how do I get there? Why are you smoking a cigarette? <laughs> oh, no. What will the child look like? No, basically, I saw a bunch of I saw a link go up for uh, a digital edition on Amazon.com, not CA. And I just kind of clicked on it out of curiosity, forgetting that I have quick buy kind of, you know, I, I Amazon's very much like not. Are you sure? Amazon will be like, OK, bitch, you just bought something. So, yeah. And they shipped to Canada. So I, I'm just saying, well, I guess I'll I'll, I'll keep this, even though. My husband's not very happy because it's a digital edition and he wants, you know, the disk drive. And I'm very, very torn on that myself. Well, I prefer to have the disk drive because then I can play games like Persona 5 Royal without having to worry about downloading them and filling up the hard drive space. Because even though the PS5, I think, has more than one terabyte of memory, <laughs> that memory fills up fast. No, no kidding. Yeah, I'm a little bit worried about that. But it's been so hard to find a... Uh, a PS5 around here and I've been just I'm so frustrated and angry I just want to keep it out of spite <laughs> I've been playing my PS5 more lately just because I've been playing a lot of MLB the show yeah like I'm getting to the point where I am very antsy about getting a PlayStation 5 because the update is coming for Final Fantasy 14 and I am sick of that game's load times so mm. when I saw the demonstration of how they're these like talents that take forever to load just like boop I was just like, oh, uh, I got to have that right now. And you have a base PS4, right? I have a base PS4. It is the oh, poor thing. Oh, God, that must be miserable. <laughs> it is trying its best, and it's had a good run, but I think it's just about had it. It works very hard, that PS4. It does, and I got it as part of an NHL bundle, so it tries. Oh, bless. Well, Nadia, today we have a special guest. We do, and uh, we actually had a really, really great discussion with him, and I am looking forward to everyone listening to it and giving us your feedback, because it was all about the women of Final Fantasy, which is, well, let's just say we talked for a long time and we couldn't even scratch the surface of everything there is to say about that topic. Yeah, we talked for about an hour, and we managed to cover Final Fantasy 7, 6, 4, and 9, but honestly, we probably could have done an episode per game. Oh, easily. Absolutely. Um, I was the one who wrote the notes for the show, and I did actually go through all the women characters in each game. I, I like how I mentioned in my notes the first game. It's like, well, there's always been that legend that Final Fantasy's white mage is a female, and that archetype has always been there, like uh, Garnet was with her white mage robes. But there was never an official female character except for Tiamat and Car uh, Carrie slash Marlith, which are D&D ripoffs anyway, so I don't know if that counts. Well, we'll be getting to that conversation in just a moment. But before we do so, here is a little bit on how to follow us. You can follow me on Twitter at the underscore Catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. We have a Patreon, patreon.com slash bloodgodpod. And our Twitter feed is bloodgodpod as well. I have a little bit of news on the Patreon front, Nadia. We now have the ability to buy a full subscription for a year and you get a 10% off if you do that. So a great way to jump in right now to the Patreon if you haven't already. And joining at the $10 level will give you access to our special episodes, including this week's Neon Genesis Evangelion deep dive that I'm doing with Emily Vanderwerf, our recent interview with Brian Mitsoda, 
plus our Zelda 35th anniversary tribute. And a little bit later, our Summer of the Rings, which starts up in May. And of course, we've got a Pantheon of the Blood God exploration of Terra Nigma coming up. And I'm very excited about that. And by me, I mean Nadia, because this is her game. <laughs> Terra Nigma is totally my game. And I have not been able to keep up with the Discord lately, but it's been interesting to see how people have reacted to the game because it is very much a quintet weird game. And I've heard a lot of complaints about a lion in a canyon. And Kat, I don't know if you know what that means, but I completely know what that means. So I'm just over here like, yes, yes, my children. Yes, love Ark. Oh God, that game ending is so sad. That's why the Discord is so great because we have people making those references and I, me having no idea what the heck they're talking about, <laughs> but it's meaningful. We have a very busy Discord and I'm quite proud of that. Well, Nadia, we'll be getting to the news in just a moment. But for first, what is your sacrifice to the Blood God this week? I am actually, now I can talk about it, playing the Shin Megami Tensei 3 Nocturne remake. And uh, I've been going through that. And I think I said in the notes, I hate every demon in Tokyo, and they, by God, they hate me. Because that's the, <laughs> the, <laughs> that is very much the impression I get from this game. I am enjoying it a lot. Because uh, Shin Megami Tensei was always a little bit more brutal than Persona, and sometimes you just need that little extra challenge. But the demons, and I, I do like how they brought back demon negotiation in Persona 5, but it is nothing compared to trying to get some jerk ass to join you in Shin Megami Tensei 3, where first off, you need to have the, you have to ask the demon to join you, and certain demons will not join you if your personality is not right. You can get monsters to kind of step in for you, and they help, but. Um, Either way, you're, you're not in for an easy time because they will stop you. They will stop you from talking to their friends. They will do everything in their power to keep the stupid human from recruiting their, their pals or themselves. So there was an instance where I think I was trying to recruit a Lilum. And she was like, okay, uh, give me $300 or Maka or whatever the, the, the currency is in that world. I'm like, okay, here's your money. And she's like, okay, give me 300 more. Here you go. Give me a lifestone. Okay, fine. Give me this. Give me that. And I gave her like five things and she took off. She's like, haha, you're a stupid simp. I can't believe you did all that. And she ran. Oh. And I was just like, oh my God, that doesn't, that's not how it works. And for some five, you give someone a cupcake and they're like, yeah, I'll, I'll betray all my friends to join you. I'm cool. <laughs> you're too nice, Nadia. Apparently, but I'm getting better at kind of reading the demons and seeing what they, what they want. And there's also the fact that you have to take into account the moon because... The moon phases also affect how you negotiate. They don't make it easy. Have they added a lot of quality of life improvements to SMT3? I have not played the original, but to hear people who have played the original, they have added uh, some quality of life improvements. So far, I haven't found it like a brutally difficult game or unfair or anything like that. That might change, but so far I think it's balanced enough. It's not frustrating me to the point that I never want to see it again. Uh, yeah, so far I'm, uh, I'm enjoying it. It's not the prettiest looking game still, but it's, it's serviceable. Now that I'm done with Bravely Default 2, I need a new Switch RPG to jump into. Like, admittedly, I'm playing Monster Hunter Rise still. Like, I finally made it into high rank in MH Rise, and I'm still cranking through that. But that's not the kind of game that I want to play when I just have a TV show on or something. Exactly. I'm just kind of absentmindedly grinding or whatever. Uh, you know, it's on that front, it's interesting. So we just did a Gathering of the Disciples uh, stream, which apologies for the technical difficulties on that. But we did manage to actually finish the episode, thank God. Yeah, and yeah. one of the questions we didn't use, but 
was something to the effect of, is your love of RPGs everlasting? And I'm like, yes. If anything, it's gone up over mm-hmm. the years talking about it because, I don't know, RPGs, I've become a little bit cranky as I've started to get a little bit older. <laughs> I like older games for the most part. And I like any game that engages my brain and I can be able to also play when I'm just watching a TV or show or something like that. And RPGs, they fit into all of those categories for me. So SMT3 might be right in my wheelhouse. God, I wish Persona 5 were on the freaking Switch. It would be so good for the Switch. Oh my God, it makes me angry every single day that I'm awake and alive. <laughs> you just wake up in the morning, Persona 5 is not on Switch, it's breaking another mirror. Uh, I, I throw my phone against the wall yet again and get up and like begrudgingly eat cereal. Every morning I wake up and remember that Persona 5 is not on the Nintendo Switch. I think it's worth getting angry over. But I, uh, That's fair. Like I beat P4 Golden because it was on the Vita. Exactly. And I could just grab my Vita and be like, I'm going to play a couple more days of P4 Golden. That's uh, great. No, and SMT3 is pretty good for that. It's not the most dynamic, exciting RPG you'll ever play, but it's really good for sitting grinding a little bit there's not a whole lot of dialogue not a whole lot of complicated story to follow but there's still like enough to explore there's enough to do there's enough to get pissy at like the the freaking demons there was a scene i loved uh, that i put up on twitter where i'm in a bar and uh loki uh, freaking loki one of the highest uh, ranking demons in any of the smt or persona games is sitting there drinking and I like go over to a door and I touch the door and you're like, eh, eh, that's my door. Don't touch my shit. Get out of here. So <laughs> I just love the fact that Loki's is this asshole in a bar yelling at kids who want to go through his stuff. It sounds about uh, to type for Loki. So very much so. I, I loved it. Well, Nadia, a, another RPG just came out this past week as of the recording of this podcast, and that is Near Replicant. It's a remaster of the original Near that came out on the PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360. Back in the day, I feel very old because a game that I once covered for 1up.com is now officially retro, if you want to call it that. And it's been getting very good reviews, Nadia. The original Nier had like something like a 65 on Metacritic. This one has mid, mid to high 80s, which is very impressive. And it seems like a lot of critics have kind of turned around on it. And are like, you know what? We're willing to give this bold experimental game a try. And admittedly, near replicant on the PS4 and the Xbox One has a lot of improvements. They've really improved the combat. It's a lot, it's a much smoother experience. It's a lot less glitchy. It's just prettier overall. It still shows its age in some ways, Nadia. But it definitely the upgrade definitely helps. But when I think of near replicant. I mostly think about how much games coverage and gaming culture has changed over the past 11 years because Nier was basically laughed out out of uh, by mainstream publications. They were just laughing. They didn't take it seriously. There was definitely a lot of discourse about that on Twitter and someone saying that, just to paraphrase, I can't remember exactly what they said, but game reviewers are kind of, I can't remember if they said irrelevant or failures or can't be trusted because of that that particular gap. And it's just... I think they were joking, to be fair. Oh, so you know the tweet I'm talking about. Even if they if they weren't joking, I, I disagree with that because, as you said, culture changes. There's a whole generation of people who have come and gone from games reviews to begin with since Nier came about, us notwithstanding. And there's... Going by what people have said, 
there is a lot, a lot to be said about those improvements to the game system. But you are also absolutely right in that in 2010, was it? Ish? Yes. Yeah, that was not a good time for JRPGs. We have gone over this many, many times about how it was the, the Dark Ages. I've seen a lot of discussion about how Yahtzee in particular really dragged near. And I could totally see that happening. That was around the time I stopped watching Yahtzee because he tended to drag JRPGs because, oh, look how stupid they are. Look how infantile they are. And he probably didn't help foster any sort of goodwill towards the genre, I have to say. I remember him really dragging The World Ends With You, and that made me so angry I just stopped watching him. I, I don't know if it was petty or not, but uh, I don't really have any regrets over that. I was the only person who took it even remotely seriously. I was like doing previews for it and everything. In fairness, the game itself didn't do itself any favors because it had the character who was intersexed and it kind of, I wouldn't say that it treated it with any particular sensitivity. It treated mm -hmm. it as more of a, a weird quirk of that particular character. And then, and now this game also has a pretty tasteless achievement i want to say where like he's like discover kane's secrets and it's like come on game do better <laughs> you're smarter than that but like it's that also time, yeah. you know fairly affecting it it does a really good job of setting a mood right because the first thing you see is these ruins there's snow you're you're an older brother in this one not dad near mm -hmm. no uh, protecting your sister from these shadowy spirits and you're like what the heck is going on with these spirits and there's really good music. And then it like flashes forward. And suddenly you're in this kind of pastoral post-apocalyptic town and you're hunting sheep. And when you kill the sheep, it's very bloody. And it's like, cool. oh gosh, I, I'm so sorry. But so there's a lot, there's a lot of really compelling stuff right, right off the bat. And it feels so much more playable now. So it, it grabbed me in a way that the original Nier uh, I had a hard time. Like the original mm -hmm. Nier was a cult favorite. And even now, like when I play Nier Replicant, my first thought is, wow, this game isn't still isn't as pretty as Nier Automata. Like Nier Automata like had some really gorgeous um, areas in it. But yeah, no, Nier Replicant, I think really, this is one of those games that really benefits from a remaster, I want to say. Yeah, if there's a, there, there's always a list of games that really, really need a remaster and games like that that are, kind of experimental for their time and maybe had mechanics that were ambitious but did not work in in uh, practice getting should get another chance i'm glad that this particular game is getting another chance and in a more kind of open-minded environment because rpgs are cool again weird rpgs are cool again and yoko taro everyone knows that he just kind of exists because he has no choice and he's very laissez-faire about it so he just inflicts his visions upon us and we are all like yay we're, we're all gonna die nihilism <laughs> I tweeted that if you had told me 10 years ago that Near Replicant would get a remaster and that it would be critically acclaimed, I would have been like, I don't believe you. <laughs> yeah, it's a, that would have been a very unbelievable bit of history back in the day. But the original Near managed, like I said, it, it garnered an audience in a way that I hadn't been expecting. And in some ways, it presaged dark souls and demon souls people were so desperate for something weird and interesting that was outside of the increasingly kind of gray blob of triple a shooters that was really dominating at that time 
that yeah like i definitely put near and dark souls into kind of the same category certainly in terms of the mood and the atmosphere that they're trying con- to convey and the kind of people that they pulled in yeah it was uh even though it wasn't the greatest time for jrpgs it was certainly an interesting time for games in general because people were pushing back a little bit against that trend the triple a gray shooter trend which is how we got games like bravely default how we got games like as a dark souls demon souls near there were certainly people out there trying to do weird, strange things, and they stood out because they, they made that attempt, and now they are flourishing. It was not my favorite time for games, I gotta no, say. No, me neither. No, I, I don't have a lot of a f- nostalgia for that era, I have to say. I'd have to go back and look at my thoughts on games from that particular period, because it always it all feels like kind of a big old blind spot. I feel like I was playing so many, I was playing so much Nintendo DS at that time. Yeah, exactly. I feel like all my best experiences were on handheld. And the thing, the only game that I really remember just blowing my mind was Bioshock and mm-hmm. everything else just never really, except for Skyrim, never really registered with me after that. I mean, I liked Modern Warfare and Bioshock and Valkyrie, Valkyria Chronicles. Of course. Games yeah. like that. Yeah, like there are definitely some really gorgeous games that came out at that time. And then, of course, Demon Souls and Dark Souls, but... And uh, the rise of indies, like it was an era that had merit, but at the same time, like, I don't, it's not an era that I'm like really nostalgic for and desperate to go back to. Yeah. Which is why I'm glad there are remasters of games that were from that era, like near. Of course. I mean, give it another five years or so people will be super nostalgic. I grew up with the Xbox 360. No, so leave me alone. <laughs> I, I'm really nostalgic for my, my game system crapping out and having to send it back and be without it for two weeks while it gets fixed. Let's bring that back. Go on Reddit sometime and you'll see people who are like, yeah, my dad had this Halo 3 account and now I've inherited it and I was talking to his pal and I'm just like, quiet child. Oh, that's so adorable, but kind of scary. Yeah, Halo 3 has become a real... A source of mega nostalgia for a certain for a certain age group. That is so weird to me, but that's just the way nostalgia works, I suppose. And it's, I mean, I thought GameCube nostalgia was weird. 360 nostalgia is even crazier. And just going to keep going uh, forward as we march, as time marches on. Like I said, I lived in Japan at that time, and that was like the three best years of my life. So I am very heavily nostalgic for that particular period of my life. It's just I wasn't playing 360 or PS3 at that time. I was playing PS2 still. That's a good point. So you and I have different outlooks on nostalgia from that period because I was very much immersed in the Western side. I had no choice. If I wanted to play games, I was mostly playing the Xbox 360. And there were certainly games I liked on there. Like I said, Bioshock, I really was into that for a while. Skyrim, same thing. So there were moments, but uh, yeah, if I want to play Skyrim now, I can play it on like my toothbrush if I wanted to. (laughs) And you should. I should. Someone do that. Well, if you want to hear us talk more about that era, I mean, the PlayStation 3 and Xbox 360 console RPG quests are waiting for you in our back catalog. So you should go listen to them. Let's tackle some RPG news, Nadia. Top story. Tales of Arise finally has a release date, Nadia. It's coming out on September 10th. Eric is very happy. And also, I got to have an interview with the developers for that for my day job. So you should go check that over at (laughs) IGN.com. Excuse me. (laughs) Where we talked about how it's a... Well, here's the interesting thing. The producer called it a reboot. 
I think it's less of a reboot than a refresh mm. in the mm-hmm. sense that it the this is the longest that Tales has been absent since pretty much its inception. There's been a Tales game that's come out every couple years, basically since the early 2000s, even the late 90s. Yeah. So the fact that there was a five-year gap between Tales of Berseria and Tales of Arise is really notable. And I think it's really benefited this particular game because the graphics are a lot better. It's going to have a fully fully orchestrated soundtrack. But at the same time, it's very similar to previous games in the, the whatever, the series. So in that sense, it's different, but very similar to what has come before. So Tales fans should be happy, but it might also drag in kind of new fans. And that's good because the Tales fandom had become very insular. It definitely needs some new blood. Yeah, Tales, I did not get to finish it. I do intend to. Tales of Asperia, uh, I really enjoyed it. I think, uh, even though I'm still not the biggest fan of Tales' battle system, I think the character interactions were hilarious and the story was fun. And if this is a, a another entry point that I can just kind of jump into, I am looking forward to it. And I have to say, Eric has already volunteered himself to be, come on the show and talk about Tales until we all die. Well, it's time to do a tribute to the Tales series. We'll probably do that as a $5 patron special at some point. So that'll be fun. Yeah, as, as the man in Robocop says, I'd buy that for a dollar. I haven't been that interested in playing any of the Tales games going back to at least Vesperia. So to have a Tales, to, but like Tales of Arise definitely kind of caught my attention. I was like, this is a really pretty game. I like that it's coming out on PS5 and Xbox Series X. I'm a little sad that it won't have 120 FPS, but it will be you know, have 4K graphics uh, or you can choose between 60 because it'll have a performance mode and a graphics mode. Um, uh, the the battle systems are usually on point and apparently it's going to be based fairly heavily on Tales of Graces, which is a well-regarded battle system in that particular you know, series. So I, I think there's a lot going for Tales of Arise. I don't think the story looks that great, but I don't play those games for the story anyway. So Yeah, like I was saying, Tales games, uh, I feel like the stories are always pretty basic, but it's more about the character interactions. There are some RPGs like that where the basic story is like, yeah, whatever, but the character interactions carry the whole thing. I actually really want Eric on the show so he can explain to me the differences between all these games because there's so many, and some of them seem to be linked and some aren't, and there's a... I don't know if it's like Final Fantasy, where there's a thread running between all of them. They tend to stand alone, but they do have uh, similarities between them, certain themes uh, in terms of the storytelling. The battle system has always been that kind of linear motion where it's in an arena, but you're controlling your characters and it's more of an action kind of situation. And by and large, Tales has always distinguished itself from Final Fantasy or even Dragon Quest and how anime it is. (laughs) It's extremely, extremely anime. It's so anime. It's just overflowing with the anime bullshit. And uh, that was actually one of his really standout points when it came first came out to the Super Famicom. The fact that it had a whole J-pop song on there, vocals and all, was incredible. That was, um, even though we did not get uh, the first Tales, aside from we had like a really horrible friend translation. I could t- speak all day about that one. It was definitely one of the those RPGs that squeezed every last drop out of the, out of the Super Famicom, kind of like Sig and Densetsu 3. 
And our other piece of top news in the RPG space, Cyberpunk sold 13.7 million copies despite all of the refunds and all of that jazz. Probably mostly based on hype because Cyberpunk was really hyped to the moon. And Witcher is at 30 million copies overall. In spite of everything, CD Projekt will be okay. I will say, as somebody who has been covering that CD Projekt news all week, they did kind of obfuscate their numbers. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because you are actually, you are the news guru now, Kat. You have a lot more insight than I do. I feel like, as you said, okay, 13 million, great. What were the drop? What was the drop off after that? And I did hear that the returns weren't quite as severe as maybe people were saying, but uh, even though they say, hey, everything, it was great. It was our strongest game ever. I feel like something in the back of my head saying, no, just, just be honest. Well, they calculated like 30,000 returns or thereabouts for Cyberpunk, but they didn't include a lot of the other underlying numbers that was going on there. Mm. So even though they had like still really strong revenue, they lost more money to returns than they kind of let on. And this has been a broader pattern of CD Projekt trying to obfuscate a lot of the backlash to Cyberpunk as much as possible and to change the narrative. And it doesn't Mm. especially sit well with me, I got to say. No, I was going to say the damage to their reputation, as cheesy as it is to say, that's incalculable. And I feel like there's there's something about the whole thing that's still not honest to me. They say we learned a lesson. That's great. But I'm not asking them to, like, you know, humble themselves or anything like that, like bow before me. But let's not forget that when the 3DS was a disaster at its launch, Iwata slashed his salary. And just a move like that is so... It's just very striking. And it, it, it's like the same thing with a Realm Reborn Final Fantasy 14 1.0. They said, we're really, really, really sorry. We really screwed this up. We're going to do better. And I'm just not getting that sense of humbleness from CD Projekt Red just yet. I, mean, I could be wrong about this. You, you might be more on the inside. Well, I'll give them a chance, I will say, in the sense that I think that eventually they'll turn cyberpunk into something that's at least serviceable and if they can put out a couple of really good expansions then i think it will maybe not be able to reach the level of witcher 3 but it will dramatically improve it this one thing as people were kind of observing with witcher 3 witcher 3 was a an outstanding rpg that became an all-time classic because of its expansions right uh, cyberpunk could possibly go from a very good open world rpg and yes, for all of its flaws, I think it does have a lot of merits uh, to an outstanding RPG at a certain point. So if not necessarily an all-time classic. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. I just think that CD Projekt Red shouldn't be there, like, as you say, obscuring the numbers. They should be a little more direct with what's going on. And I just feel they're not quite doing that yet. No, they are not. But we shall see. In the meantime... It is time to talk about our main topic, Nadia, the women of Final Fantasy. Don't go away. Hey, RPG fans, it's your friend, Kat Bailey, host of Axe of the Blood God, and I'm here to tell you about our Patreon, patreon.com slash Pod. Every single month, we have exclusive RPG goodness for all of our listeners, including tributes to classic games, watches of shows like The Witcher, 
and of course our Pantheon of the Blood God, in which we explore classic RPGs from Final Fantasy VIII to Skies of Arcadia. Here's a glimpse of what you have been missing. The other thing that kind of defined Terranigma was its sheer scale and its scope. And this was a thing that was kind of common on Super Nintendo RPGs circa 1995-96. I would say Dragon Quest VI was a really big RPG. Final Fantasy VI, obviously, humongous RPG. And it felt like developers, they really understood the technology at play at this point. And they felt like they had a massive canvas to paint on. They had gone from the very basic adventures of like Dragon Warrior and that kind of thing on the original NES, and they felt like they could paint on a great scale. And Terranigma, I mean, it's like all of human history is that the and... scope of this story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just thinking about it and saying it out loud, it's so crazy how you start from nothing to bringing back nature, bringing back humanity, and then building cities. If you can figure that out, you can make some really incredible cities that tell their own stories. Like, it's, it, there's so much in there. Yeah, and then also there's the the very strange thing you can do where you can play through the game without doing any of the economic development stuff. So as you go from dungeon to dungeon, you're going from like this pre-Dark Ages area to a castle to mm -hmm. the east coast of America, which is somehow in maybe the 1990s, but doesn't have airplanes. <laughs> I mean, there's a skateboarding black kid, so yes. <laughs> that's much at some point, we're going to have to get into Perel because, like, he's maybe one of my ho most hated video game characters of all time. And, like, I mean, it's just so strange. So weird. And then you go to the parts of Russia where there's a cult that's building a future tower and an airship to uh, turn everyone into zombies and save people from death. That was a special look at some of our patron-exclusive content. If you want to hear more... Head on over to patreon.com slash bloodgodpod. Now, back to the episode. Okay, we have a special guest, Giuseppe Spinella. They were a $100 patron for Axe of the Blood God over the past few months, and that means that they've earned the right to be on the podcast and pick a topic. Welcome to the show, Giuseppe. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for having me on. And yes, I'm looking forward to this episode, and I hope that you and also the listeners will enjoy this topic. You picked, uh, the topic that you picked was the women of Final Fantasy, which is a, a great topic, but I'm curious, why did you pick that topic? Okay, so there are a few reasons. Um, first of all, I knew that I would be, uh, you know, just on one episode of uh, the Acts of the Blood God. So I wanted to have a topic that was really important to me. And that is why I thought, okay, it's got to be Final Fantasy because it's my favorite series, you know, in, in gaming. And then I thought, what could I look at? And then I realized most of my favorite characters are actually the women. And I thought, why not have a closer look at that? Um, 
also because when you had your Final Fantasy uh, ranking of all of the games, you did mention some characters that you liked, but you did not give, you know, reasons why you liked them. And I'm very curious to hear, you know, why do you like, for example, I, th I think I remember you said you liked Selfie from Final Fantasy VIII or um, Lulu from Final Fantasy X. And so this way I can, you know, try and get more answers out of you. And I'm curious to hear what it'll be. <laughs> Inside in insider information. That's awesome. Yes. <laughs> We're being interrogated by our own guest. No, no that's pretty cool. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Why Final Fantasy in particular? Like, what what about it about that series really speaks to you? Well, it was my very first RPG. Um, I think I was I don't know whether I was twelve or something when I bought my very first Final Fantasy, which was Final Fantasy VII, and I was surprised by the gameplay. I hadn't played an RPG before, so not even on the Super Nintendo or anything. And it just captured, you know, I, I do think that Final Fantasy as a series has even had a formative effect on me somehow. So it helped me grow as a person as well. There were characters that I could identify with or that I, you know, really liked and strive to be like them more or less. And with every game that has been released, it is a series that does reinvent itself. So it keeps things interesting. Though admittedly, some games do end up to be, you know, being better than others. Mm. Um, I don't like all of them equally, but in general, I've never been, uh, let's say, disappointed by a Final Fantasy game, even though some entries, as I said, are not as strong. Yeah. What was your favorite first Final Fantasy? Well, it was Final Fantasy VII, and it is my favorite together with um, Final Fantasy IX. And then I continued playing all of, you know, those that came before uh, afterwards. And then I started also going back to Final Fantasy VI, V, and so on and so forth. And yes, Final F I would say the ones I like most are certainly Final Fantasy VI, VII, and IX. And I also have started playing Final Fantasy XIV last year. Because of the pandemic, it was a good time to start an MMO. <laughs> oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. that, that was, I, I always thought I didn't have time for an MMO, but, you know, because of the pandemic, I thought it's now or never. And so, yes, and I'm very happy. I, I'm also with that game. Nadia's happy because she has somebody to gab about Final Fantasy XIV <laughs> right, right now. I'm just going to stretch out and be like, oh, okay, okay, you two start talking, so <laughs> it's fine. Cat gets to catch her breath. But yeah, there are. Um, when I made this list for Final Fantasy, I actually did include a, a couple of NPCs from Final Fantasy XI and Final Fantasy XIV, although I debated at first, well, do these games count? And they, I, I think they do because Square Enix's MMOs are definitely story oriented. So we will talk a little bit about those characters as well. Well, we have a lot of ground to cover in Final Fantasy. I mean, <laughs> there are so many games. Honestly, we could talk about the women in just one of these games for pretty much the entire episode. But we'll hit some of the highlights, I think. And since Final Fantasy VII was your first, maybe that's a good one to start with because Final Fantasy VII has some really strong characters. Obviously, Aerith and Tifa are key examples right there. Uh, what was the name of the gal who works for uh, Shinra? Oh, Scarlet. Scarlet, yes. The funny thing about Shinra is that it's basically the Zabi family from Gundam in that you have 
<laughs> a bunch of like you know bad guys or like bad men and then the one token woman who is a powerful social climber and everything he's a real um I, i'm gonna use the the not nice term here ball buster yeah and uh, <laughs> dozel is even kind of dozel zavi is basically president shinra so um yeah no the, I, I i see the similarities i guess you could say but um one of the things that stood out to me about Final Fantasy VII Remake is that how much it did to enhance Aerith, Tifa, but especially like Jesse. Like Jesse went yes. from kind of a non-entity to a fan favorite and for a reason. Like I'm curious what your thoughts on this are, Giuseppe. Well, with Jesse, I was surprised how much they changed her or how, you know, uh, strongly, she flirted with Cloud. I gathered it made some people she, she thirsty. <laughs> <laughs> she thirsty, yeah, and like she's on the motorcycle and kisses Cloud, and Cloud's an idiot. Like he's just uh, he just blue screened. His his mind goes blank. Clearly, it's like, are you like have you never been kissed before? Something tells me you haven't been kissed before. Yeah, I would also think you know that he's not very experienced in that. Um, he tries to act like it, but he's not. Yeah. <laughs> Unlike Cloud. Zach, who we at least know he had a relationship oh, yeah. with Aerith. So. Zach's a ladies' man. When by ladies' man, I mean he loves Aerith. That's my official That's my official pairing is uh, Aerith with, with Zach, Tifa with Cloud, but polyamory exists for a reason too. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm easygoing. You mentioned that Aerith is your favorite character. Why is that? She's my, not just my favorite Final Fantasy VII character, but actually my favorite female character in all of the video games I've ever played. Uh, wow. And it's just, it's a few things, um, I think. I, I just liked how graceful she was. And she was also a bit fun, even though this translation, you know, made it a bit hard to actually recognize that. But And I also played the German version, the first time mm. I played it um, because uh, I am from Switzerland and it, the German version, if I'm not mistaken, was based on the English translation. So like, and already the English translation is known for not being the ideal one. In any case, I really liked how um, funny she was with her smile, that tihi, the way she laughed. And what I admired most was how strong she was how she was able to always keep a positive outlook, even though she carried this huge burden, you know, being the last of the ancients, then knowing that she might have to, you know, confront Sephiroth or probably die when trying to cast uh, Holy, use the white materia. So just the fact that she could still smile and still keep going and never stopped caring about the others, I thought that was something so um, admirable. That was something that I really realized with uh, the remake as well as Crisis Core is that Eris, as you said, she carries a humongous burden, but she's a very, not just upbeat, but very, like, kind of, I don't want to say sarcastic, but she's very, um, she definitely has a, a very uh, sharp sense of humor that mm -hmm. doesn't come out all the time, but it's certainly there. And I actually think one of the, the funniest moments in remake was when uh, they're, she's kind of clamoring through the, the wreckage with Cloud to get away from Shinra. And they go up a rusty ladder, and Cloud's like, you know, watch your step. And she's like, oh, I can take care of myself, you know. And then, like, it starts to break down, and she's like, she's just like, oh, shit. Like, <laughs> <laughs> the fact that she just, I know it's, like, kind of juvenile to say it, but the fact that she kind of swore like that really 
mm-hmm. reaffirms the fact that, okay, well, she's the last of a totally endangered race, but she's also still like a human girl, mm-hmm. half human anyway. Yeah, the way they were able to humanize her to really make her feel like a, a common girl, like a, a completely normal person at times, and then still she was so very special. I think that was pretty difficult to achieve, but I, uh, in my opinion, they did a good job. They absolutely did. And have you played Crisis Core? Yes, yes. And I think that... Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt there. Oh, no, continue. Uh, I just think the scene where uh, Zach is, is crying... And she just kind of comes up behind him and hugs him. It's like one of the one of those heartbreaking scenes in a Final Fantasy game. Like the way there's no words is just so well done. I really love how they did that. Yeah, that is a lovely scene. Also, uh, when he dies and then she turns around, like she felt felt probably maybe she even knew right because she's connected to the live stream. That was also very touching. And um, harking back to what you said before about uh, your conviction that Aerith belongs to Cloud. Uh, no, Aerith belongs to Zack. I also started to believe that after playing Crisis Core, because before I was always for, I rooted for Aerith and Cloud just because I like yeah. Aerith more than <laughs> Tifa. But then when I learned, you know, about Zack, then I realized, okay, the only true way this is supposed to be is Tifa with Cloud and Aerith with Zack. Yeah, and I think they're definitely going to lean into that with the remake. And of course, there's a Crisis Core uh, remake game. I can't remember, but they're still going into that universe. So uh, I think that's going to be explored even further, that that sort of bond between them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, who knows what will happen in the second part of the remake. It could be grand, it could be awful. Uh, (laughs) We live in interesting times. But the, the, the very last scene of the remake where she's looking at the sky, I thought that was also reminiscent of one of the images from the original where she's looking at the high wind and also at the open sky. Ah, um, that point, was a, yeah. a nice link. And also um, what I really liked was how she said she was scared of the sky of the unknown, basically, you know, being mm-hmm. captured first in this kind of prison that Midgar was and then suddenly leaving it. And actually I also want to point out something about her name, which in, I think the English translation and also the German was Eris, right? With an S mm-hmm. at first, and then it was changed into Aerith. I actually do prefer the name Eris. Firstly, because, well, that's the one I got to know first. But also, I do think that it creates a link to her identity simply because it could come from the word air, so from the Latin iris which means air of the air, you know, which is another Mm -hmm. link to the sky and maybe even to the atmosphere, she being, you know, later on a part of the live stream. So that is why I always preferred that name. But, well, we'll have to go with Aerith from now on, I guess. Unfortunately, it's canon now because I I agree. Aerith was the name I knew her under because that was my localized copy of the game. And I understand your explanation actually makes a lot of sense. So I still slip up and call her Eris all the time. But Aerith is definitely canonical. Uh, so mm-hmm. that's that, I suppose. Aerith sacrificed, traumatized a new generation of RPG fans and also people who pegged her as their party's leader. So <laughs> that's, that Yeah, that was, a, that was very traumatic uh, because I am someone who's very fanatical about having a healer in my party. Mm-hmm. I am uh, very obsessive about healing. And I'm like, oh, cool. Aerith is the perfect healer. Look at this limit break that fixes all my problems. And then she dies. (laughs) 
Well, Nadia, I have to take some exception to your notes because I mean, you're just totally dragging Yuffie, the self-evident yes. best girl in Final Fantasy VII, who has always been in my party. And how dare you call her Ninja Punky Brewster? That's just all I have to say. She is totally Ninja Punky Brewster. Oh my god! Like maybe she should make a good impression because uh, when you first meet her, she steals all your materia and just she tries it again when you go into the Wu Tai subquest. And like I said in the notes, why have her when you can have like a, a, a dog that's like on fire or uh, even that jerk who can transform into different monsters and Sid, who's a, a chain smoking dragoon? Why would you not have that? The answer, obviously, is that she has short hair and is cute. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I can't argue that. Uh, I also remember getting really badly stuck on the Wu Tai quest because the pre-rendered backgrounds were really screwing me up. and didn't know where to go. And. Uh, so that was another strike against her in my book. But either way, Square Enix is really focusing on her, so I have to learn to love her. Yuffie was cool because she was a secret character that you could unlock, and then she had an entire missable side quest, a whole mm -hmm. new area that you could go to, and that was a big deal back you know, in 1997 when Final Fantasy VII came out. That was actually quite a missable area, and thinking about it, Final Fantasy games, retro ones, were very very big on hiding those on hiding side quests like in in final fantasy six uh you had to go through side quests to find umaro and to find gogo and it was actually one of my one of my proudest moments as an rpg player was figuring out how to find gogo by myself but yes Wu Tai was completely missable um to be honest when, when i replay the game i rarely go back to Wu Tai, except i think that's how you get the leviathan material so sometimes i do it giuseppe what's your take on yuffie um Actually, I've also always used Yuffie in my party, so I'm very happy. <laughs> yes, take about, that, Nadia. Uh, also, she's quite a versatile character, being very fast. Her limit breaks also include, I think, some healing ones. And she could also hit pretty hard. So just from a functional perspective, you know, as a character, I think she had some value. And then I loved her uh, character. She was so funny, so cheeky, the way she stole the materia. Um, was surprising. I had never experienced something like that before and it made me really like her. And I it, do it like... It is quite alarming. Yeah. When she steals your materia, it's very alarming. That's the point when you realize how much you've been relying on materia and mm. how limited the battle system is when you don't have, you know, the possibility of using materia, you know, defensively and offensively. It, it makes a Absolutely. huge difference. Yeah, because everything is connected to materia. Like, say, for example, you equip the skill materia, which I do all the time, and you get all those really cool monster skills, like Big Guard and, and White Wind. That's all linked to your materia. So if Yuffie takes it and throws it off a cliff or whatever she does, I don't remember, <laughs> uh, you're screwed. Yeah. So in a way, she makes you realize, you know, what... She makes you take materia not for granted so that you'll value it mm -hmm. more once you get it Very back. much. And in general, I like Yuffie simply because to me, she's like a, a recurrent character in the Final Fantasy series. There are quite similar ones. Um, these characters that have this side to them, they seem to be so, you know, happy all the time or uh, have this facade at least. But then in reality, they're hiding their pain or some kind of conflict inside. I mean, with Yuffie, it would be the fact that she really wants Wu Tai to get back to its former glory, right? And not and stop being just a tourist spot now that yeah. the war uh, with Shinra is over, at least in the original. And you have something similar, I 
also saw in Selfie from Final Fantasy VIII, you know, always being happy, but then sad or dealing, you know, with the feelings of love for Irvin and so on and so forth. And same goes with Riku in Final Fantasy X up to Vanille in Final Fantasy thirteen. Uh, so I could always see, okay, this is the kind of Yuffie character that uh, I like. <laughs> and so automatically I did like those just because of this kind of link to Yuffie. So the upbeat sort of troubled uh, troublemaker. If you yeah, know. yeah. It's funny that you mentioned Riku because I was thinking exactly the same thing. I was like, yeah, she's a lot like Riku. But yeah, there's definitely kind of a, a type, a Yuffie type, <laughs> a template, as it were, uh, a trope thinking of many different words uh yeah <laughs> selfie and riku and all of those different characters who outwardly cheerful but a little bit sad on yeah. the side so and then meanwhile she's going to be in the final fantasy 7 remake dlc and i absolutely love her design and she's so perky and fun and that by itself makes me want to replay final fantasy 7 remake god help me <laughs> Yeah, I have to admit that um, even though I'm not the biggest Yuffie fan, I do kind of like the fact that they're retconning Wutai in that they are including its activities now in in the Shinra Resistance, whereas it was all over and done with in the Final Fantasy uh, Vanilla. Wutai is now a major part of the Resistance. So they started that with Crisis Core, and I thought that was actually an interesting way to start the game. And uh, I think that's why the only reason I would go to Wutai is because Wutai is the... Uh, I think it's patron saint, patron uh, idolon is Leviathan. And like I said, I'd go there for the Leviathan material. Yeah. <laughs> Take off. Bye. Well, let's roll back really quickly one game to Final Fantasy VI. Final Fantasy VI is another game that has quite a few female characters of note. And one of the only Final Fantasies to, even though it's an ensemble game, strictly speaking, Terra's Terra and Celeste are probably its uh, its main leads, would you say? Co-leads, as it were. Terra is certainly, uh, if not the main character, then one of the central characters. Secondary, I'd say, is Locke, and maybe then uh, Celeste. Like, they all kind of form this uh, this triangle of uh, power, I guess, for lack of a better I term. I guess, like, Locke is the Han Solo, and exactly. Celeste is kind of the Princess Leia, but she's a general. <laughs> and yeah. I don't know where Terra would fit into the whole situation, but... Uh, I mean, Celeste does get her entire section by herself after the world ends. Yeah, um, she is the main character for the first half of the end of the world. But the first part of the game, first half of the game, the balance uh, in the world of balance is Terra. And she starts off as like, of course, she doesn't know what her memories are, classic amnesia. And as you go through the game, it, it's about discovering, helping her discover who she is. Okay, she gets your answer. How, do, how does she control her power? How does she uh, find meaning in the world? And she has to go through all of that to find, God, any semblance of peace in her life and finally finds that, okay, well, my purpose in life is to uh, basically be a mother to these orphans. And it's one thing I have to say about Six and Tara, even though the whole thing about like, oh, you know, love is the meaning of life, at least it was... Not like a usual, oh, I'm going to love this, like, you know, I have to commit to a man or whatever. It was her with with, with these kids. Like, it wasn't anything, like, uh, romantic. Just love is family, and I'm going to be a family to these kids. And uh, I am not going to hook up with anyone. And that's uh, that's very unusual for a Final Fantasy character. It wasn't even insinuated that she wanted to be with anyone, except maybe Leo, and we all know how that ended. 
Yeah, it's definitely a different take on the usual love story, especially afterwards with Final Fantasy VII and on the love story became such a central part yeah. of the plot. And so, but I do think, I do see Terra and Celeste, as you said, as kind of, they form a unity, like, because to me, they're also the main characters. As you said, first we have Terra that goes, you know, travels the world and finds all the other party members. And then Celeste does the very same. Uh, I mean, it's optional to find everyone, but in theory, you can. If you want to have a chance, you should probably find right? everyone. And both learn how to love because Tara at first stresses that she doesn't know what that means or how, what it means to love. And so she finds this maternal love, while Celeste, on the other hand, also learns to love Locke, you know, um, because of his problem let's say early relationship with rachel there are also many questions but then she does believe that he loves her as well and so there's also this kind of uh parallel journey that both uh women make and also um what i really like is also the symbolism again in the names of both characters so terra being obviously earth and celeste on the other hand again sky mm -hmm. And in the Japanese version, if you combine their names, where Terra is called Tina, right, you have Celestina, which from Latin means uh, heavenly. Oh, that's cool. I didn't think about that, but you're absolutely right. Interesting. I like yeah. That. So they really are, I think, like two sides, one side of like they, they're the same in a way, you know, different, but they do belong together. And one standing for, you know, the earth things of life. So like being a mother, you know, more common things and the other for the air, like this romantic love mm -hmm. and those aspects. And also, uh, I'm sorry <laughs> if I'm going on, on and on. No, no, absolutely. It's just um, when... Um, Celeste sings at the opera. She's singing an air as well, you know, an aria, mm -hmm. again, linking her to the air theme. And also the aria is called um, Aria di Mezzo Carattere, which means area or air of a half a character. You know? So she is half a character to me. If you, you have to put her together with Terra to get the whole, you know, some kind of yin and yang of the Final Fantasy VI. I never thought of it that way. Like I, I, I never even thought about the translation of the, uh, the of the opera. But uh, no, absolutely, that's actually a really interesting point. And I really think that Final Fantasy VI does romance really well too. Like it's uh, the bond between her and Locke is very long forming. It's subtle. It doesn't come from a very healthy place because she's screwed up for her own reasons, and he's like hyper dependent on. Uh, uh, carrying a lot of guilt for what happened to Rachel. So they have to both work for that, work through that rather. And they even have kind of a hiccup in the middle where um, it is either believed that Celeste is a double agent or she is a double agent. It was never ex made extremely clear, but the trust between them there is broken for a while. And Locke tries to apologize for not trusting her. She doesn't accept the apology. And then she tries to apologize and he doesn't accept the apology. It goes on for a while. Basically, when you find Locke again in the, in the Phoenix Cave and he tries to re resurrect Rachel, it doesn't go, doesn't go well. And that's finally where she's the one to tell Locke, hey, let go of your past. And like, there's a woman here right now who loves you. Go to her. So he finally works it out. And only then are they really together. But even then, they don't really have a, a mushy moment of confession or anything. They just, you know, stand by each other from then on in. Yeah, it's subtle, but still convincing. Exactly. 
What amazes me is that opera scene wasn't a total freaking disaster on the Super Nintendo, <laughs> that it still holds up. It's still fantastic. It really is. Um, definitely one of uh, Uematsu's best com- compositions by far. Yeah, I think the, the sheer strength of the compi- composition overcomes the fact that it, you're just really straining that poor Super Nintendo sound chip to the limit, trying to have something resembling vocals. Yeah, and then poor Ted Wolsey had to. Uh, I don't know if you played the game in in English, Giuseppe, but he yeah I have. Oh, okay. So he had to kind of make a rhythm and a meter out of that without much context. Like that must have been uh, that must have been kind of difficult. Yeah. Also, um, Final Fantasy VI was one of the first Final Fantasies that I uh, started playing in English. Oh, cool! Um, it wasn't really available. I don't know, maybe it was available, but I I never found it. I mean, probably was there for the Super Nintendo, but since I started with Final Fantasy VII, you know, it was too late to find a copy. Right, right. So I played it um, through other means, and it (laughs) was only in English. And I remember I was pretty young as well, and my English wasn't that good back then. And I remember, for example, when I played it, and uh, the very first battle, you have terrifying Biggs and Wedge, and you and then you also have those spells like blizzard and thunder mm-hmm. and i always when i wanted to use thunder i always used blizzard because in german blitz you know such <laughs> as in the uh, right. words like blitzkrieg and other ones means actually thunder so i used the wrong one i'll say no come on <laughs> <laughs> blizzard <laughs> I have a really good friend who um, taught herself English through Final Fantasy VII, which probably isn't the greatest way to learn English, but I do know a lot of people who in general have at least like, if not taught themselves English through video games and RPGs, but like help perfect it through that. So it's just a really interesting learning tool. I can tell you for certain, I do not believe Final Fantasy VI got any sort of European release. So if if you emulated it, big deal. You are totally justified. But yeah, I also think that uh, those Final Fantasies, all the earlier ones, were crucial in my in improving my English. You know, and nowadays yeah. I'm actually an English teacher, so oh, cool, <laughs> it worked <laughs> well enough. Is, I guess your English is probably better than mine then, because I could not teach English. I just anytime I had to learn grammar in school, I'd fail every single time. I just can't grasp it. So I'd just tell kids, uh, "Do uh, free for all, everyone. Do Lord of the Rings over there. I don't care." <laughs> Well, when you're a native speaker, you don't need to know the rules, right? They're just... Uh, exactly. I'm very privileged in that regard. Uh, growing up in Eng- like an English-speaking environment is, is actually very, very beneficial, frankly. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I wanted to ask also, Kat, have you, like, um, when we're talking about Celeste or Terra, were you using them in your party in Final Fantasy VI, or did you prefer using other characters? It was a long time ago when I first played Final Fantasy VI, but I remember that I was using uh, Cyan. I was definitely using um, Chainsaw Guy. <laughs> Edgar. Edgar, yeah. Edgar. I can never remember his name. <laughs> Jason. <Guy. laughs> uh, I was using um, Sabin, and I believe I was using Celeste because I really liked her. Um, and it really came to... And Celeste was kind of my main character and actually come to think of it it's interesting that even though tara is ostensibly the main character you don't really have to use her in your party am i right no you oh. you're not really committed to anyone mm-hmm. but yeah. i think that maybe like for the you first have to time, use cloud 
in Final yeah. Fantasy VII. Yeah, but no, you can make a party out of anyone in six beyond like you have certain instances where you have to use a character, but it's only for like certain story moments. So I think maybe what happens to a lot of people is maybe they first half of the game they use Terra a lot, and then you wake up with Celeste. So you use Celeste from there on in, and she was always a permanent part of my party. Um, mm-hmm. Frankly, one thing I put in the notes, and I still believe, is that I am so glad Celeste and Terra, despite being female characters, can use the heavy armor. They can use the heavy swords. Even now, so few female RPG characters aren't allowed to just freely equip what they want, and it's extremely frustrating. I didn't really understand, even though the game explained it to me, uh, her ability, the absorbing magic ability. Oh, the runic. Oh, the runic, the, yeah. The runic, yeah. yeah. That was always confusing to me. Um, one interesting parallel, another one between Celeste and Terra, is they are both natural magic users. They both learn inherently spells, which is something magic is gone from the world of Final Fantasy VI, so no one can really do that anymore except a few like recluses up and uh, hidden away. But Terra can use magic naturally because she's half Esper, and Celeste can use magic naturally because she's kind of uh, she was infused with with Magitech, like she's a genetically engineered to use magic. So that's another interesting parallel between them. That's true, and also uh, the runic ability was actually, I thought, one of the best abilities simply because it allowed you to absorb elemental spells directed at your party, I think, so mm-hmm. you could protect everyone and were even healed, I think, by the elemental spell. And whenever I've seen Celeste in, let's say, spin-off games, such as, um, I think she was in Dissidia Opera Omnia, or maybe yeah, yeah, access, I'm not sure. When, when she she usually has the runic skill, and that is also a very useful skill in most games, simply because it is so unique. I think in the Final yeah. Fantasy series, no one else has a similar ability, or I just can think of anyone. I could be mistaken. Maybe it's a job that in one of the games. I don't know mm-hmm. if that's Magic Knight maybe. or something, but it's. I think it's available, but it's really, really not common. So you're absolutely right. It's quite unique. My question to both of you is: Anybody use Realm? <laughs> nope. No, I, I also I didn't get her. Use her. Realm is she's a pictomancer. Uh, if you want to go by the job uh, description of what she does, and she's really, really interesting because um, for two reasons. Number one, with her sketch ability, which lets her mirror what an, an enemy can do. Uh, if you sketch an enemy who has the invisible status, you will completely bork your game because Final Fantasy VI had bugs galore, and that was one of the most infamous one. Uh, but she's also the daughter of Shadow, the reclusive ninja. I always thought she was fascinating for that reason. And I always wondered, like, what must, what must it have been like for Shadow, who ran away from her in the first place? And he has this mission from the Empire to go to, the, I can't remember the name of the town, Thad Mazda. And he has to go back there and he sees his daughter there. Like, what must have been on his mind? Like, oh, crap, <laughs> this, everything's coming back. Yeah, that was actually a well-kept secret also. Like, I, I think you had to rest at an inn with uh, Shadow yeah. and so on to see flashbacks. And then you also had to know, you know, how to keep him alive on the floating continent that you had to Which wait. I didn't the first time. I, I nobody does. Something. I think nobody, nobody does. ever so you're does. Like, oh, yeah. get out of here, get out of here. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I hadn't saved after finishing the Atma weapon and I was so terrified I was going to die. So I was just like, I've got, I completely forgot about poor Shadow. But if you leave Shadow to die on the continent, then you rescue Realm instead uh, in her area, in, in her place, rather. And you see, actually, a unique dream through her where she says to Strago, like, where, where did Dad go? Was he ever coming back? And then if you see Shadow's dream in the same place because you rescued him, you see him leaving and saying to Interceptor, I'm not going back. So that was a really nice bit of uh, 
kind of hidden lore from Square back when they, can, they, they prove once in a while that they can be subtle. Sometimes. Sometimes. Occasionally. The interesting thing about Celeste is that much like Yuffie, she kind of became an archetype that recurred throughout the series as well because uh, she became General Beatrix in Final Fantasy IX, who in turn became a Dragoon in Final Fantasy XV. And so that became a recurring archetype as well in Final Fantasy. And since we're talking about Final Fantasy IX, uh, let's just jump over there really quickly. I like General Beatrix. She's awesome. <laughs> Beatrix is awesome. She's also I, my favorite, yeah. yeah. She is, as you say, the archetype that um, she defects from the Empire, the evil force, because uh, she realizes what they're doing is wrong. She, she also has an eye patch. She has an eye patch. Uh, does it ever explain how she loses her eye, or was it just like, because it's cool? Because it's cool. Okay. She does she's have like... like uh, she's like Daryl Hannah, L Driver, and Kill Bill. Well, I thought the the eye patch was uh, symbolic for her, like being partly blind to what was going on, or choosing Ooh, to you know not meaning. I love it. What was going yeah. on with Queen Brana? Just, just seeing with half her heart, as it were. Yeah. That's interesting. She also has, I think, for my money, one of the best themes in Final Fantasy ever, the Rose of May. I think that's a just beautiful theme. It's also my favorite theme out of all Final Fantasies. Yes, I love it. it it's so simple, but so nice. And uh, what I also like about Beatrix is just how strong she is. Like you're able to control her for a short uh, time, a few battles. And then you realize, my God, like I wish she were the the permanent party member and maybe not Steiner, though, to be fair, Steiner is, uh, you know, goes through character <laughs> development. But what I also like is basically how she's a foil to Steiner. So they're very different, almost opposites. One is competent, the other less so. The other is Steiner. <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> and she is a paladin using healing magic and uh, very strong sword skills with the holy element. And he, on the other hand, at first doesn't have strong skills and he's only able then later on with the help of Vivi to use black magic, you know, to use elemental swords. So you have this opposition, white magic for Beatrix and black magic actually for Steiner. That is also um, shows how they're supposed to be opposites, though then mm -hmm. later they join as they, you know, they become a couple. Yeah, and that's actually another really great theme that plays. It combines both their themes. The interesting thing about Beatrix is I think her power levels are some of the highest in the series. Is Outside of like Sephiroth, is there a character who is more powerful right off the bat than Beatrix? I think when I first played Final Fantasy IX, I realized there were a lot of parallels between her and General Leo from Six, And I think that was totally on purpose because same thing where defects from the Empire and you play them as a for a while. And you're like, oh man, they're so cool, so strong. And unfortunately, it ends really badly with Leo. But at least, at least Beatrix has a bit more uh, of a, a lucky time. But I also can't think of anyone else that feels so powerful when you do control them. I mean, yeah. the first time you yeah. control Sephiroth. Yes, better. you're so just badass. Well, you're maybe what ten hours into the game at most, and you're just walking around, and he's ruining absolutely everything with level three magic, mm -hmm. and you're going, "Holy crap!" <laughs> and just that cinema scene where he one shots that dragon that usually just one shots Cloud. To me, that was like one of the most incredible villain introductions in a Final Fantasy game. But of course, Final Fantasy, uh, Beatrix is not the only woman in Final Fantasy IX. Uh, Garnet is mm -hmm. one of those main characters. And actually, 
even though she's well known, she's not my favorite in many ways because she kind of falls more into that stereotypical pattern of like the the princess who's run away and then she goes from being kind of naive about the world to cutting her hair, literally cutting her hair at a certain it's the, point. It's the old trope, yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, becoming I she has a cool nickname, Dagger. That's cool. Dagger's but I, I never call her Dagger. Does anyone call her Dagger though? I always call her Garnet. I don't, no. I call her Dagger. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> and I don't like her jumper, like her jumpsuit. <laughs> it's very yellow, isn't it? I don't like it. It is yellow. very yellow. Uh, I think the game should have been about Freya, just saying Final Fantasy Nine should have been about Freya. Yeah, Freya got shafted here. I mean, she she had her one little story, but otherwise she's just the, the rat dragoon who's a rat for some reason. Because she's Dramesian. But I for, I don't know if it's still the case, but for a while at least, I am cited on the Wikipedia entry for Final Fantasy IX bitching about how Freya didn't get enough screen time. <laughs> am I crazy for feeling like Final Fantasy IX is the only game that has a really strong furry element? Where... Because, you know, it has the rat people and I think other animals as well. Outside of 14, yes. 14 is as furry as hell, but yes, you're right. I guess 12 has different creatures as yeah. well, but they aren't actual, like, animals. No, the Nomu and stuff like that. Yeah, they're uh, they're around. But no, 9 is definitely, 9 had me blindsided with the way everyone was, like, a furry and not, like, a, a part of a, other than the Burmesians, part of a, a stable race, like, why is a hippopotamus woman running the inn? I don't know. Is there another hippopotamus woman anywhere? No. Okay. I, I can accept this, I suppose. Because. The answer is because. Because. Because hippopotamus woman. I wonder if, like, was she, like, viciously territorial the way real hippopotami are? Because they will they will destroy your- She'll bite your head up. She'll, like, chase you for miles. She'll chase you for miles. Have you ever seen videos of hippopotami chasing people? Holy crap. They do not mess around. No. That would be, like, that would be so conflicting, though, if you were an innkeeper. Like, you're territorial, but you want people to come to your inn. Oh, my God. I, I want to write a fanfic about this chick. <laughs> I, I think uh, you could raise her son, though. Uh, there was a mini game where you could raise, I think, the little hippo uh, boy. Oh, I missed that. I want to raise I, a hippo. I, I think, kill, yeah. Kill me. I mean, the mini games of Avancinana, you know, could be a topic for its, mm -hmm. itself. Like, the there are some very good ones, some atrocious ones. But, yeah, I think the racing one was there as well. <laughs> And that was uh, rather easy, you know, compared to, you know, where you had to jump, I don't know how many times to get some cards. Right. Ouch. I forgot about that. I, I blocked that out. Yeah, but um, if we want to return to Freya, I think that, our, you know, sadly, what happened to her in the fandom is a bit what happens to her in the story. Namely, even though she has everything, you know, that makes a great character, she looks great. She's actually pretty strong. She has a at least at first uh, an emotional story an interesting one she's forgotten you know like where mm -hmm. is she you know Fredly forgot about her and somehow everyone else too she's not talked about very often and i think that's a shame it is um as as much as i enjoyed nine and as much as i understand as a favorite i feel like some of the characters are just drop off a cliff and the we're, something went wrong with the writing because I, to this day, I'd never remember the character who joins you at the very end, the, the jerk. Amaranth. Yeah. Amaranth. Who cares about him? What's his deal? Why are we having him instead of learning more about Freya? Like, I never... Well, I never every understood. Final Fantasy has that guy. At least latter-day Final Fantasies. The extremely yeah, underbased least... character who's just around for reasons. Yeah, but I think Nine was especially bad about not 
tying up those plot points aside from Garnet and Zidane. And then there's Aiko, who's kind of like Rydia from Final Fantasy IV and is the friends with Garnet. She's also a summoner and she doesn't seem to have a lot of death outside of the fact that she's kind of a fun child character. That's it. Well, she did. She was like in she love with Zidane also. Yeah. Yeah. But so she's a plot point. She's a vehicle for the plot in that regard. I always thought it was cute. Her interactions with Vivi were cute. How she tried to act all grown up, even though they were more or less the same age, at least when you're looking at their size. Um, what I think is detrimental both to Aiko um, and Garnet was basically that they had the same roles. So both yeah. healers and both summoners, even though they had different healing spells, I think, and certainly different summons. Different summons. They yeah. they had those, but it made one redundant anyway. So you would never, I've never used both of them in my party. Yeah, that did bother me a little bit because even though Final Fantasy IX lets you have four characters again, to the much to the detriment of the poor PlayStation, I found it quite annoying to have two summoners. Um, because it, it just got confusing. I have my favorite summons. I don't want to have like two characters have it split between them, even though I understand the story reason why they did that. It, it didn't translate so well in the gameplay. Yeah, maybe that is why when you're thinking of Garnet, she doesn't seem as unique as other main heroines, maybe. Um, though I will say, uh, and also see what you've written down on your notes that the ending scene with uh, Garnet is uh, beautiful. So it's one of my it's favorite scenes cute. from the game. How she, when she sees Zidane again, how she runs towards him and then her pendant drops, like she uh, accidentally drops it and she looks at it, but then she thinks, no, I'm not going to pick it up. I'm going to run towards Zidane. Mm -hmm. And she even throws away her crown. Like, I don't know. It's like she's saying she's not the queen now. She's just, you know, a woman in love and wants to be with him. I, I just love also how her, basically that little interaction where Zidane like shrugs, like <laughs> and she's obviously clearly saying, where were you? And she's just like kind of hugging him and punching him at the same time because he just like is so, so glad, but so like angry at him. That's very cute. Well, we are running out of time, but no. I definitely want to make sure that we hit at least one more. So, Giuseppe, is there one that you really want to hit before we wrap up? Final Fantasy VIII you don't like, though, right, uh, Nadia? No, I, I actually, I like the characters. Mm. Um, okay, so then. I understand enough about them to really kind of have a conversation about them. I just have to say uh, for eight, uh Quistis using, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the comic of her using bad breath, like, because uh, she's a blue mage, technically. And just the, the implications are really, really, really disturbing. So the fandom has pointed that out. I also <laughs> find, you know, her limit break, you know, the blue mage disturbing when she uses Gatling gun or other missiles and her body spasms and... Final Fantasy VIII has, it has problems. <laughs> it has problems. But for Final Fantasy IV, which of course is one of my specialties, cough, cough, um, we have Rosa and we have Rydia. And Rosa is, she's okay. She's white mage she is also an archer she has a bit of interesting supplemental bats story where she loves cecil and he kind of loves her but they kind of hesitant to be together because uh she is nobility and cecil being 
as far as anyone knows, he's a bastard. So no, they don't really want them to be together. And there's a whole thing about that in supplemental Japanese materials that's really interesting. So, of course, you have to know that to know that information. But otherwise, like presented as the game itself, Rose is fine. But I frankly like Rydia a lot more. I think she's definitely the more interesting character. Do you have any particular favorite, Giuseppe? I also prefer Rydia. Um, I thought the development she goes through is interesting with her inability to cast fire spells right. at the beginning because of how her village was burned down by uh, actually uh, Cecil and uh, Kane. Oh, whoops. <laughs> <laughs> and how at, also as a summoner at first, she's not able to control that power like Titan causes a huge earthquake. And then when she is swallowed by Leviathan and goes into the Fae March and then time progresses differently, so she comes back almost an adult, uh, suddenly she's able to cast fire spells and also to control in the end also the queen and king of the mm -hmm. summons so you really see how she grows that is uh i think nice to see just and also to experience and in final fantasy 10 you also have this link to riku who is scared of lightning and it reminded me of Rydia, yes, because Riku was hit by her brother with a lightning spell accidentally. <laughs> and since the then, uh, <laughs> she uh, was uh, scared of lightning. So that's why in the thunders, the, the location with all of those uh, thunders, she uh, screams and is scared. Uh, but she also mm -hmm. overcomes her fear in the in the sequel. So they have really this parallel between Rydia and Riku yeah. as well. That's an interesting parallel. And it's actually like Final Fantasy IV is not like the deepest game story-wise, but that was an interesting, the fact that they visited that trauma that Rudy was having. And not only was she having that trauma, but Cecil was kind of forced to redeem himself for everything he had done, including traumatizing Rydia. So, which is why he, climb, he climbs Mount Ordeals and becomes a paladin. Um, I also love the fact that you can, like, I think Rydia is this, also the source of some really fun side stories in 4. And there's not many side stories in 4, but she's behind the fact that you can go back to the Fey March, the fact that you can, like, recruit this, the Sylphs as um, a summon. I think going back to the Fey March is a lot of fun because it's such a, a mystical town full of, like, monsters, and you get to talk to the monsters, and they're like, oh, Rydia, hi, how are you? And, of course, you can acquire uh, Ashura and Leviathan as summons, but only if you beat them first. Same thing with uh, Bahamut. If you want him as a summon, you have to prove yourself in battle. So I like the fact that all these extra challenges come through Rydia and her stories. What's interesting to me is that apparently uh, Final Fantasy IV's summoners are inbred. Yeah, that's another um, bit of uh, Japanese lore. Apparently, the summoners of Mist are... Insular, as you know, it's like actually quite a, it's actually a blocked off town for the most part. And they tend to marry within their own bloodline, apparently. And the bloodline apparently is uh, on fire or not, is doomed. Whether or not Rydia is inbred or not, it doesn't really say. So uh, I wasn't aware of, you know, this. <laughs> I, I have all these. I have a whole lot of like stored up Final Fantasy. IV. Even though it's not my favorite Final Fantasy four, it, it has like some of the more like fun side stuff that only japan got and i just kind of store up all that, those little facts and stuff like uh did you know the green dragon and the yellow dragon they have wings but they can't fly they're fully for display there you go <laughs> <laughs> let's have a podcast of nadia nadia talks obscure final fantasy four facts uh the dragoons are all hereditary uh because it takes so long to train up dragons that the dragoon positions are all hereditary 
I I thought Final Fantasy Four was your favorite. I know six is your favorite, but the way you talk about four, you talk about it so fondly that I uh, almost feel like it's your favorite in your heart, even though you also have a lot of affection for six. I have a lot. Uh, six and fourteen are probably my favorites. Four is definitely up there, but four I think I just love, and we've talked about this in the past because it's such an easy one to pick up and play. It's so easy to start a new game, Final Fantasy Four. Enjoy the story for what it is. Follow that path. I, I think that the redemption arc with Cecil is still fantastic. It still feels so good to do. I love the boss fight. So it's just one of those games I just, it, it's important in my heart, even though it's not really my favorite. And I know that's, that's weird, but it's the way it is. I also um, think that Final Fantasy IV, from a narrative standpoint, does one thing that other Final Fantasies do not, and is using the stats of the characters in a very interesting way. So how Cecil, after you know, uh, going, becoming a paladin, starts at level one again, mm-hmm. or um, how Tella can never use meteor because he, his MP won't rise above. Uh, the, he's too old. To the, yeah, yeah, he's too old. And also, when he levels up, he actually loses stamina and vitality, uh, and becomes weaker in, in certain aspects. While his intelligence will rise, so that is uh, certainly something they have not really kept in other games, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. You're right. That's I really forgot about observation, yeah. Yeah, I forgot about Tella getting weaker as he gets older and uh, forgetting his spells and, and stuff like that. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, getting getting killed by his own spell, but in a cool way. I'm actually really looking forward to the Sage uh, class in Final Fantasy fourteen. That's going to be so much fun. The Gundam class. <laughs> I will say that Rydia, when Rydia grows up and returns, she has one of the coolest uh, entrances in any Final Fantasy ever. When that she is comes such a in, pain in the ass. <laughs> it's right, really cool, could... though. What was it again? I can't remember what her entrance was. I think it's in the Tower of Babel, and Golbez has you on the ropes, and he has that stupid dragon that can one-shot you. And just as he's about to destroy Cecil, Rydia comes in and uses the Mist Dragon to dissipate the the Dark oh, Dragon, yes. mm-hmm. and then. God help you if you don't have a cure lined up because you have like Cecil has one hit point and Rydia has not many hit points. She's never strong in that regard, no matter what happens. So if you can't get a grip on the battle right then and there, you're dead and you have to go through the whole thing again. But it is pretty cool if you can get it right. But it is super fun and intense. It's a great It's battle. extremely well intense. Yeah. I, I think I that's have- a really good observation about how Final Fantasy IV is quite subtle in the way that it uses its RPG like elements and RPG stats and everything. Uh, to yeah. kind of drive the story for it. Mm-hmm. It is. It is a, a, a clever little bit of media-relevant storytelling that I think video games should be a little more unafraid to explore. More complicated than it looks, given that it's a very early Super Nintendo game. Yeah. Most people just think of Final Fantasy IV as the, the RPG that has all of the heroic sacrifices. <laughs> the RPG where everyone keeps dying. Yes. Well, but in the end, one of the only people who stay dead is Tella, right? That's true. He he stays dead. He ain't coming back. Him and Anna. <laughs> but he was old already, you know, so maybe that. I don't know if you, did you ever play the After Years, Giuseppe? Uh, I tried. I really t- I I do have it on PSP uh, about the complete collection. Unfortunately, those random battles, like every two steps, that was, the, that was too much for me, so I couldn't keep playing it it's not a good game but i will say i read one of the meanest things in that game and that is you play as edward for a time and he's the king of damn cyan and uh as you know at least that like final fantasy 
after years. Everyone is kind of grown up and has kids, uh, except for Kane. He's a loser. But uh, <laughs> Edward is also alone. And you meet an NPC who tells him, oh, if Anna were still alive, you, your heir would have been born by now. And I'm just like, how dare you? How can you say that? And she's saying it like so oh, casually, you know, she's not trying to be mean, but holy crap, woman, go to the dungeon and stay that there. That is mean. <laughs> That's very mean. All right. We're running out of time, but so let's wrap it up really quickly. Do we have any final thoughts, any interesting through lines that we've managed to pick up as we've talked about Final Fantasy six, seven, nine, and four, and the women therein. Giuseppe, do you want to point anything out? Well, um, I simply think that all characters in Final Fantasy, the women and the men, and the genderless ones like Queena and others, if you really look closely at them, they all have something interesting. And I do also believe that even though Square Enix has changed, you know, from when it was used to be Squaresoft, also in the way they make games, there can still be lots of subtlety found in the Final Fantasy, if you look closely enough. And the links between the Final Fantasy games, they do make each character more interesting. So as we've pointed out, some character archetypes that keep showing up, maybe revisited a bit different, but you can still see them as uh, you know, reminiscent of somebody else, um, is also makes you appreciate having played the other games more. So the more Final Fantasies you play, the more enjoyment you'll get out of all, of all the others that you play afterwards, right? And I think the pinnacle of this is Final Fantasy fourteen, where it's basically a huge a love mm-hmm. letter to all the previous Final Fantasies. Mm. Yeah, so, absolutely. And I also think uh, the Final Fantasy women have um, their representation uh, is quite inspirational and and good, you know, especially um, if you keep in mind that, as we've said, Celeste, Terra, and then also Lightning were female leads during a time where it was still rare to find female leads in video games. I mean, still today, it's not as common as male leads, but uh, obviously there's been a lot of improvement. And uh, what do you think, uh, Kat and Nadia, about, you know, this topic? I think that Final Fantasy in many ways was ahead of its time, especially starting with Final Fantasy VI or thereabouts, because women were not well portrayed in the 16-bit era, I want to say. And usually they, uh, sometimes they fall into relatively, you know, fall into boxes, I suppose, or whatever, archetypes. For women, like I think Garnet is a great example of that, um, or whether healers or or magic users are not very strong. But then you have characters like Beatrix, who manage to remain feminine while also being really strong and really cool. And so Final Fantasy has generally managed to have a, a pretty broad swath, a good swath. And I think Final Fantasy VII Remake is kind of one of the best examples of that at this point. I mean, just the example of the relationship between Aerith and Tifa, um, how they manage to be really good friends and just immediately strike up a friendship, irrespective of maybe their attraction to Cloud. The game manages to get away from just them battling over whether or not they're hot for Cloud. And then, of course, Jesse is there being very thirsty, and I'm into that. (laughs) So... Yeah, I think the Final Fantasy has a really strong fan base of women, and I think maybe that is one of the reasons why. What do you think, Nadia? 
Uh, I think Giuseppe used an interesting word, which is inspirational. And I think that Final Fantasy VI was probably a good game for me to play in my formative years because it had such good woman representation. I know there's been a lot of arguments over Celeste and whether or not she's a good representation because she does have that pining for Cloud, uh, especially at the beginning of the World of Ruin. But I always argued that First of all, there's really nothing wrong with a woman falling in love with a man. Like, I am totally into more diverse relationships and stuff like that, but I'm still totally okay with, hey, let's have a good old-fashioned man-on-woman thing going on here. Whatever. Speak for yourself, Nadia. (laughs) (laughs) All options are open to me. But basically, I think that she exhibits, like Celeste in particular, exhibits a, a great deal of strength especially at the beginning of the end of the world. But even so, it's not perfect. She's not a perfect character, and that's totally okay. She does have that breakdown. She does try to kill herself because she's like just totally wrapped up in despair, and that makes complete sense. But she, at the same time, gets a hold of herself. She gets a hold of what's important. She works things out with Locke, and she is an adult. And it is so nice to see RPG characters who are adults. All right. That is a conversation that we're probably going to have to revisit at a certain point because we've barely even scratched the surface in many ways. There are so many more Final Fantasies to talk about. So perhaps there can be a part two that we can talk about. But in the meantime, let's continue on to our next segment, which Giuseppe, you should join us for this one because you have a boss that you want to submit for that. And that is our epic boss battle of the blood god don't go away all right it's time for the epic boss battle of the blood god the segment in which we take a look at a memorable boss battle from an rpg and giuseppe you are a special guest you have a submission that you would like to add to the catalog and what is it okay so my submission is made in astraya from demon souls and tell me a little bit about Maiden Astraya and what it makes your encounter with her so memorable. I personally deem her to be one of the most interesting and memorable boss fights in any Souls game. So when you travel through the Valley of Defilement in Demon Souls, you know, that deadly poison swamp brimming with abominations, insects and everything, you finally reach the sanctuary of Maiden Astraya. When and you are intent on killing her for the demon soul. As you approach her, she then tells you, you know, um, she talks to you. Go forth, Galvinland. May you be unharmed. Leave us, slayer of demons. This is a sanctuary for the lost and wretched. There is nothing here for you to pillage or plunder. Please, leave quietly. This is our home. We have done no harm to you. Dear God, have mercy. Is not your abandonment of us punishment enough? How long must we weather this cruel fate?
What you realize after you hear this is that you, the player, are the evil one, if one with evil in air quotes. Um, the infiltrator. Yeah, because Maiden Astraya, then you also learn she was a pure soul who tried to help everyone, but then was caught in this corruption. And some now even speculate she might be the source of the corruption in the Valley of Defilement itself. Like she could be the one who spreads the plague. After all, she is... In her sanctuary, there is this kind of red uh, blood field, you know, liquid that if you touch it, um, actually does give you this, the status ailment, a plague. And there's also uh, scary babies in there. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> That's the worst scary kind of babies. <laughs> yeah, the plague babies. Um, so, but still, she does still care for the people in the Valley of Defilement and wants to protect them. Um, from a gameplay perspective, it's nothing spectacular because you fight Gal Vinland, who is her knight and most likely also her lover. And the fight with him is, you know, it's not that difficult. Um, and actually, you can also pick another route somehow in that room to get to Astraya without having to fight him. However, once you beat him or once you approach her, she so if he's dead, she will lament his death and then she will kill herself. So this fight is not hard from a gameplay perspective. However, I think it's a memorable fight simply because it can take an emotional toll on the player or at least make you think about your role in the game. And Astraya's last words before killing herself are um, very well. I can no longer resist you. Do as you like. Take your precious demon soul. And this sounds almost as if she were mocking the player, you know, for basically doing what they're supposed to do. <laughs> I mean, they're supposed yeah. to beat the game to get the demon soul. But somehow it makes you question, like, what am I doing? You know, for the sake of this game, I'm uh, killing a poor lady. Even though she's corrupted, obviously she's still she's still herself somehow. You know, she's still a, a, 
a woman trying to help those in need. And yeah, that's why I think it's a memorable boss fight. It occurs to me that video games are one of those mediums where they can give you powerful incentives to do terrible things and then make you step back and go, why am I doing this? <laughs> like, I'm a bad person. So yeah. this is a kind of a key example of that. Mm -hmm. Speaking of archetypes, um, I'm not much of a Souls player, but I, knew, I do know a bit of the lore. And if I'm not mistaken, in Demon Soul, sorry, Dark Souls, the first one, you have Sif, the wolf. It was very much the same thing where she is guarding her master's grave and you are the one who, who's attacking this, this nice doggo with a sword in its mouth <laughs> and taking what's not yours. Yeah, it's awful. Also, I think when she has low HP, she starts limping and you really feel for her like, gosh, yeah. It's like Monster Hunter. It's like, I don't want to kill the poor doggy. <laughs> Monster Hunter makes me feel bad sometimes because you, the monster is trying to limp away and you're just like, Come back here. I got a stick. I'm I got a big sword. I got a stick. Sorry, we better finish. It's just like, well, we may as well finish this off because uh, you have like a million broken bones. I'm really sorry. Yeah, you gotta die because I need to upgrade my bow. So yeah, sorry. Yeah, I need your cool armor. I need glamour. I need, I need glamour to wear glamour. your arm. I need to wear your skin. Don't you understand my plight here? It's a really good scene, actually. And Demon Souls and Dark Souls are filled with such scenes, and I think that's why people have really connected with the the lore of those games, even though it tends to be uh, quite subtle. All right, that is our epic boss battle of the Bloggod. Thank you so much, Giuseppe. And if you want to submit your own epic boss battle of the Bloggod, please send an email to cat at bloggodpod.com or DM me on Twitter or just DM me on Discord. I'm like right there. <laughs> you can talk to me. Okay, that is about it. For this week's episode of Acts of the Blood God, Sefi, thank you so much for yes. joining us. And thank you so much for supporting the podcast, your generous support. Is there a place that we can reach you? Oh, well, first of all, let me thank you. Uh, it was a lot of fun to be here. And to me, this was like a dream coming true. And it's also so oh. weird to, oh, I mean, uh, the listeners at home, they they don't know, but I can see you, right? And that is also very unusual. <laughs> see <laughs> the faces we of the people faces. whose voices you've heard for years now, uh, you know, talking to you. So it was a great experience. And I hope the listeners enjoyed uh, the content as well. And you can only really find me uh, if you write, write you can write an email, right? Because I'm not really on any social media. I might have some accounts that are basically dead because I never go. You're smart. There. Stay off social media. It's a plague. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of blood it's plagues. Full of yes. babies. No, okay. It's full of plague babies. To Twitter. That's a good tagline. If anyone wants to, you know, chat about RPGs or, you know, just get in contact, they can drop me an email at um, spin and then underline Giuseppe, which is spelled G-I-U-S-E-P-P-E -E -E, at yahoo.de right, for Germany. Awesome. Yahoo. Yes, that Yahoo email. I've had it forever. You know, that's basically the only reason why I'm keeping it, because it's the one I've had forever and it's too bothersome to change it. But yeah. And of course, you can find me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. And our Twitter account is blood god pod we'll be back next week as always with more amazing rpg content but for nadia giuseppe and myself thanks for listening happy adventuring